episode 365 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect those of our firms, our clients, our family members, our friends, or our pets. But we have a great uh, panel for the roundup. Nate Jones is here, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council, and now at Culper Partners. Uh, uh, Jamil Jaffer, who's the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and the busiest man in national security. Jamil, good to have you. And Charles Elibut, who's a Steptoe partner uh, heading our EU cybersecurity data and privacy practice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, and I asked Charles to be on special so that we could talk about the transatlantic data row. But Nate, do you want to get us started? What is going on here and why is it hot all of a sudden? Yeah, Stuart. So I think in recent weeks or months, there's been a fair a bit of optimism, I think, on both sides. And it seems that some of that may have been a little bit misplaced. But there was hope that leading up to, to Biden's upcoming trip to Brussels, that they could hammer out a new transatlantic data transfer deal. That looks increasingly unlikely, at least by the deadline, longer term. It, it kind of looks as though that it, it looks like the president is going over there hoping to get an agreement that there is a deadline for uh, reaching an agreement. Yeah, to speed up negotiations. But you know, once these trips pass, sometimes that urgency dissipates pretty quickly. And so I think there's some reason to be a little worried here if you're in industry. But, you know... I think Europe has, we've been through this a couple of times already. Everybody's kind of seemingly put their eggs in the basket of getting a new certification from the European Commission and a new adequacy determination. And the uh, there's been a, a, a recent push that I think the US is going to have to give in more, even some suggestions that they're going to have to pass some legislation to adjust, if not their collection authorities, at least their redress processes for impact. European citizens. And on the U.S. side, there's, I think, a long-running feeling that's strengthened over time that they've been chasing this long-term deal with Europe for years now, and it never really comes to fruition. So why keep giving in if you're just continually negotiating against yourself and the goalposts are going to be moved again in a couple of years? And so something's going to have to break this logjam. Just to get refresher on what's at stake here, from the U.S. government's point of view, the problem here is that the European Court of Justice said, unless the U.S. government has laws that read exactly like our interpretation of the European uh, Convention, no one can send data to the United States that might be subject to these national security rules, essentially. And that certainly means a lot of big data companies. And right now, if that's the law in Europe, people can be punished pretty seriously for moving the data to the US. So probably people are not moving the data to the United States. It makes it much less likely that the US government will be able to get access to important counterterrorism communications because the data won't be available to the US. Uh, and any companies that depend on moving data back and forth across the uh, Atlantic suddenly discover that their business is severely constrained, if not wrecked. Charles, what did I miss? Yeah, no, so it's let's call it a typical Stewart Baker summary, but uh, I think it's uh, I think it flies. <laughs> no, it wasn't mean enough. <laughs> so, but uh, no, I, I think what we should add is indeed that yeah, there is of course a lot of uncertainty on the existing situation. But I think to Nate's point, there is also a lot of uncertainty on any kind of upcoming future situation as well. Because if you look at the element of language from the uh, European Commission, they were initially saying, hey, we will renegotiate uh, with the US, but it's more important for us that we have a good deal rather than a quick deal. And you're still hearing the same type of things on and on again. And frankly, what, what my vision is there is that there is a big push from the U.S. trying to say, you know what, we are coming on June 15 and I'm not coming alone. I'm coming with everyone that needs to uh, get a deal with you Europeans. But I, I'm not sure we'll, it will be that easy, uh, especially uh, as we are already done playing the outcome because it's, uh, it was initially strike a deal, then it's 
reach out a high level political agreement and then yeah you you don't know where we will end up so uh, so curious to see where indeed we will land if if on anything so, Jamil, I don't see any reason why the Europeans shouldn't just lay back and say, show me your best deal and I'll decide whether I like it. Their, time is on their side. Uh, the U.S. is losing intelligence every day. Facebook and Google and uh, other big U.S. companies are more and more exposed to big time litigation. And so they're going to start making alternative plans that cut out the intelligence community. What What is the value to the U.S. of letting this rock along? Well, I think the problem is that the European Union really has been inconsistent about this, right? They apply different rules internally to their own intelligence collection. By the way, the ECJ is about to impose the same rules that it imposed on the U.S., as you point out, on them. And so this is a problem they have to solve too. It's, it's not cost-free for them. And sort of the position that the EU presidency has taken with the U.S., which is you just need to pass a law, right, which will give us court access to your courts, our citizens access to your courts, is a position they know is a non-starter. I mean, it's never going to happen. It's They would never give Americans access to their courts. They don't even give, they don't give their own people access to their own courts to challenge foreign intelligence questions, much less Americans. So the idea that we should pass a law to comply with the ECJ's ruling is just laughable on its face um, and never going to happen. And so there's got to be another path forward, and the EU needs to find that path for its own purposes anyways, for its own member states. So I'm not so sure about that. I, I want to challenge that because what the, uh, the, the European Court of Justice said is we don't really have authority under the convention to set standards for European collection for intelligence and national security purposes. But we are entitled to say what's adequate for purposes of exports of data. So we're telling you that foreigner, foreign governments have to conform to our standards, but European governments don't. Well, so essentially, I'm not sure I read it that way, Stuart. I read the language in the ECJ's ruling to suggest that under the European Constitution, right, there may be arguments that the same rules that are at the adequacy sort of theory, right, would apply to, uh, to Europeans. I mean, look, we'll find out issues being litigated now, right? So we'll find out how they resolve that. Um, I think you're right under the agreement because it's an adequacy determination, right? They have to make that assessment here. But under the European Constitution, they have broader authorities, at least they seem to believe they do. And we'll, so we'll find out. But I do think that puts a little pressure on the EU. That's number one. Um, number two, Look, I think that this gets lost in a larger issue, Stuart, of our relationship with the European Union. Yes, it may be immediately tactically beneficial to the Europeans to play this game out of, oh, it, does the privacy shield work or not? Let's play high stakes poker with the US, right? But the reality is that the Europeans gain a tremendous amount from American intelligence question, right? There are more terrorist plots stopped in the European Union than we're in the United States ever under our own intelligence collection programs under what we share with them, right? That's number one on that point. Number two on that point is the Europeans benefit from having U.S. companies participate under a, an appropriate regime in their economies and work with their people, right? Every, it's, not, it's not like only Facebook and Google and these companies benefit, right? The European citizens benefit from this innovation and the like. They don't want to push this off. And third, perhaps most importantly, let's not forget about the real challenge that we all face on the horizon. It is not... The fight is not between the EU and the U.S. The fight, the longer term fight is with China, right, who are, do, who are engaged in all sorts of bad behavior, right? And the idea that we should continue to squabble amongst each other is ridiculous when we have a bigger threat on the horizon. I mean, never mind Russia that's sitting right there and, and causing trouble in Eastern Europe, right? That's bad enough. The Chinese are ready to take advantage of this problem between us and the EU. We need to find a path forward for our countries and our economies. We share values. We share common visions. Yes, we don't agree on everything. But the idea that we should be divided at a time when China's the big challenge on the horizon is insane. And hopefully, President Biden and his, you know, looking a little bit different than President Trump, a little bit to find a path forward with the Europeans that doesn't just give up the ghosts on everything in the U.S., but finds a reasonable path forward. And look, the Europeans have got to give to these points that they're making publicly. We just got to give it and pass laws that allow their exact U.S. courts is a ridiculous starting point for negotiation. As I say, I don't get many opportunities to agree with Jamil, so I want to jump in here. The shame, naming and shaming Europe and its member states isn't going to put pressure on them. Their hypocrisy has been well known in this space for a long time, and it hasn't moved the needle. <clears throat> but I do think if you can force them to apply these same rules to themselves and give them some skin in the game here, it, it makes them, it forces them to make some of these hard choices. And you've seen some of these developments happen. I'd be interested in Charles' thoughts on this, maybe offline. 
But with the court striking down the data retention laws in the UK and France and other places, and most recently striking down the UK's equivalent of 702 in certain respects, is some glimmer of hope, I think, that they're going to have at least some of these same rules applied to them. And on things like necessity and proportionality, where you'll see the member states start to advocate for rules that maybe the U.S. can live by and maybe could form the basis of some kind of adequacy agreement in the not-too-distant future. I'm really skeptical because the people who benefit from our counterterrorism intelligence programs are not in Brussels. They're in the member state capitals, uh, and Brussels doesn't care. They don't think that uh, U.S. companies are going to abandon Europe over this. Instead, they think U.S. companies are going to store data in Europe and make more jobs in Europe. Uh, and as far as China goes, I think they believe that they spent 50 years triangulating between the United States and Russia, and they can do another 50 between the United States and China. But let me turn briefly to the kinds of pressure that's being put on private companies. The standard corporate clauses are the only viable mechanism for moving data around right now legally. Uh, and we just got a significant clarification and modification of those standard clauses. Charles, how does the modification reflect on this? Yeah, and it's indeed a very timely news. So we had the final version of the new standard contract clause being published on Friday, and they were in the uh, EU official journal today. So it's really fresh out of the press. As you said, really the standard contract clauses is for now the almost the one and only uh, transfer mechanism you can rely on for transferring data to the US. But as part of that ongoing discussion around SHREMS, there were, was that uncertainty as to what it meant and what is needed. So the new SECs, they tried to do two things. One, they adjust the old SECs to GDPR, so the, the new framework in a number of different uh, reasons and instances. But secondly, they also tried to provide some form of, of an answer to the SHREMS2 uh, saga. And basically, why is it so? It's because they include some reference to technical, organizational, and contractual measures that one need to put in place to deal with the outcome of the Schrems 2 uh, theory. It will be hard for people to jump into the new SCCs because it's a complete shift in approach. A good thing is that they have some time, so they are provided 18 months to transition from the old one to the new one. But what I think is even more important is how the new SECs plays out in that kind of fight between the European Commission and the EDPB, so the organization of all of the data protection authorities that also came out with some recommendation on how to deal with Schrems 2. That looks like a very Brussels bubble type of uh, things, but it's pretty important because you had from the one side the Euro uh, European Commission promoting some form of a more business-friendly approach to uh, dealing with Schrems 2 versus the EDPB, who was rather... So the let me just to stop you for a second, no. just to understand what's at stake here. The European court had said, if you work hard enough and do enough to persuade us, persuade the authorities that the U.S., the objectionable U.S. intelligence collection laws aren't at issue in the particular data that you're transferring, then maybe you can keep using these clauses. And the data protection zealots in Brussels said, yeah, how about never is good for us is never good for you. That's when we think you'll be able to do that. And what the commission has said is, no, you, there are circumstances. And essentially what they're saying, if I read it right, is if you've have not had a an order from the U.S. government under any of these laws to produce data. You can write it down, say, well, I've got no such experience, and therefore I don't think it's a very likely prospect. And I've got a legal analysis that goes with that, that explains why that might not be likely. And that's good enough. You put it in your file and you wait for somebody to- Yeah, look exactly. Up. And really the, the funny thing is that after three months or even more of- uh, uh, internal discussion and process in the final SCCs as adopted on Friday, you still find that language saying, indeed, if you never had 
uh, request from uh, a US authority, uh, you are probably fine. But then you should read the remainder of the sentence, which is a kind of typical Brussels outcome, which says, but if you never receive an order, but you are still in a field where technically you might be subject to some orders, you need to be more cautious because eventually it means that you need to do something. So, so that's um, where we land after five months. So that's where the lawyers will make their money. They'll explain, well, yes, you've never had a request like this. And knowing what we know about the intelligence interest of the United States and how the laws work, you can be sure that it's highly unlikely you ever will. And you meet this requirement as well. So I think it's doable. This is interesting because it reduces the temperature in the trade dispute while completely gutting the intelligence programs of the United States. Because obviously, if you can move data only if you've never been asked for the data, it's because your data has no intelligence value. And therefore, the only data that doesn't move is the data that the the US government might actually use for counterterrorism purposes. So uh, it's it's not going to help the intelligence agencies. uh, And I fear that this is this will rock along for a while and the president and his advisors will never get up the nerve to say this is a violation of our, of the EU's WTO agreements it's an arbitrary and discriminatory treatment of the United States and we're going to retaliate for it in a significant way they could do that tomorrow if they wanted to but they haven't breathed a whisper of that kind of toughness. All right, let's talk about the colonial uh, pipeline, where at least a whisper of toughness is exactly what we're getting. Uh, Jamil, TSA's long been a light-touch regulator. They seem to be toughening up their approach to pipeline security. Well, I guess better late than never, I suppose. First of all, it's odd, right, that we have the Transportation Security Administration of all doing a in-depth cybersecurity review of anybody, right? It's sort of a weird artifact of the way that DHS and its organizations have evolved. They gave TSA responsibility over pipelines, uh, much less pipeline cybersecurity. So I think, one, we got we to gotta think about whether that makes sense from a practical perspective. But beyond that, look, we've known, I mean, how many times has the Director of National Intelligence testified before Congress, at least three that I can count, where they've highlighted the fact that the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and maybe the North Koreans have the ability to disrupt significant portions of our, our, whether it's oil and gas or energy industry or whatever, have the ability to take action against it, right? For varying periods of time and the like, right? It's not like we haven't known this for a while. The same, by the way, is true of our financial sector. We've seen issues with the healthcare sector, um, and obviously we've seen at least intelligence collection against the government. So it should come as no surprise to anybody that these industries are vulnerable and that the government is not doing enough to help protect them and and do the job. And so the idea that now TSA is going to come in and find some regulatory way to impose a better better cybersecurity on pipelines, I mean, forgive me, Stuart, for being a little skeptical that the government, which has been hacked more times than we can count, has the answer to how to regulate industry to better secure itself, right? I, I actually worry that putting the government in the middle of cybersecurity regulation and impose, imposing constraints on industry is likely to, one, create a compliance culture where people are just checking the boxes, two, get more lawyers involved in you. I feel about lawyers and cybersecurity, not a particularly good combination, even though I will admit I am a recovering lawyer in cybersecurity. And three, uh, uh, the government figuring out what makes the most sense for private industry to do effectively. And by the way, keeping up in a timely fashion with the evolving cybersecurity industry and threats strikes me as hard to imagine working effectively. So call me skeptical, color me skeptical, right? Uh, At the same time, obviously there's important work to be done here between the government industry. In my view, that work involves bringing industry together with the government, bringing industry together with industry, getting frankly the government out of the way, getting the lawyers out of the room so that cybersecurity operators can talk to one another and collaborate in real time without having to get their lawyers involved. So again, I know I'm arguing for people on this podcast to be have less work and perhaps less billable hours, but I do think that, that if you've got CISOs and their direct report SOC operators work together more effectively, whether it's in industry or with the government, that's likely to be more, more beneficial than regulations that get more lawyers involved and, frankly, create a compliance culture that's not going to be effective for cybersecurity. I, 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 I understand all of its many drawbacks, but we don't, we don't require that the staff of the SEC demonstrate that they've made a million dollars trading stocks before they can regulate stock trading. It's 
often possible to know what people should do without being able to demonstrate that you on your government budget have been able to do it. I, and the TSA has been trying the public-private partnership uh, dance for a long time now, several years with the pipeline companies. And Colonial said more or less, oh, yeah, we'd love to sit down with you, but we're washing our hair that week. But we're going to move our building sometime at the end of the year. And maybe after that, we could talk about cybersecurity. They they haven't been rushing to do anything because they, they don't think TSA, they didn't think TSA had a stick in the closet. Now TSA has said, one, we know there's one thing you need to do. If you have a cyber incident, we need to hear about it. And God, they do, right? It's not like it's just the private business of a pipeline company, whether they can deliver their products to market. Uh, We are all relying on them uh, and we deserve to know whether they've screwed up or not. And I, I, I completely agree with you. Compliance culture is not going to give us cybersecurity. It might give us a base, but it's not going to solve the problem. Uh, I, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be using it because we've tried the tea and cookies, uh, come on in and let's talk approach since the 90s. And that's clearly not working either. Well, so I think there's lots to say about that. So, so one, I'm not sure we've tried the real tea and cookies approach, right? Tea and cookies would involve us giving you something to do this, right? Giving you incentives, right? We haven't really incentivized good behavior in this space virtually at all, right? We have some fake liability protection in the Cyber Information Sharing Act that was passed in 2015 that gives you liability protection for the act of sharing information as if that matters at all. Nobody cares about that, right? We have created some uh, clear laws and rules in 2015. That was a good idea. We need to do more there. But, you know, Stuart, to your larger point about this particular incident, right, I actually see this as a win, right? Yes, the pipeline was down for a period of time, right? But it was proactively taken down by a company that wanted to stop the problem from spreading. And by the way, they were up within a week. They didn't, there wasn't some massive disruption. Yes, there were some crazy people who decided to fill up gasoline and plastic bags. That was a bad idea, as we all know, right? Um, But by and large, we didn't see massive changes in in the price of, of gasoline or oil. And by the way, JBS, which is you know, this meatpacking company that got that was subject to another ransomware attack, also had similar problems, also proactively shut down its plants and within 48 hours was back up and running. So we haven't seen massive dislocations, which is a dramatic improvement over prior. And by the way, all this came without some big, hand, heavy handed government cybersecurity regulation. So, so I do think that there's a positive story to tell here. Now, would it have been better if they hadn't been hit? Sure. Wouldn't it be better if the government and all these government agencies from sheriff's departments to D.C. police to schools all around the country didn't get hit with ransomware? Of course. But is the answer to that after the fact incident reporting? Maybe. But maybe the answer to that is getting ahead of the problem, incentivizing good behavior, not regulating good behavior, and sharing what the government knows about threats in real time at machine speed. As we've talked about, yes, for a decade, Stuart, but we still don't do. Right. And it's worth saying, and I know I've said it a million times and I'll say it one more time. Right. In no other domain do we expect private industry to be on the front lines of defending against Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. If it were bear bombers coming to the horizon, we'd say the government should have surface to air missiles, not target should have surface to air missiles. Yet in cyberspace, oh no, the rule is not only does Target and Walmart have to do it or JP Morgan and Citibank, everyone in the economy has to defend against Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and the criminal hacker gangs that they empower or let run by. And by the way, in Russia, Three things happen when, when it's a criminal hacker game. Either they're, they're operating with the government's knowledge, they're doing it for the government, right? Or the government's on the take. And there's very, it's very rare that Russian gangs are operating in cyberspace without the government being involved in some level, okay? Or, by the way, they're often former, they're government, current government officials who are doing this, right? And current government hackers who are doing this. So I don't buy this. We can't put pressure on Russia, right? We can't put pressure on China and that it also be in the hands of, the, of industry, right? And that the best answer to that is regulation. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all for putting pressure on Russia if we can do it. I'm not quite convinced that we can, but what the heck? I, and let's just remember all the good things that happened here, all the operations that were not shut down, were not shut down because nobody was trying to shut them down. It was not the brilliance of the private sector. It was the lack of interest of the uh, ransomware guys. And we can't count on that if we're dealing with the Russian state. But I, okay, let's switch over to another, a new form of regulation where I'm a little more skeptical, which is regulation of government access to DNA. Nate, we had two uh, states 
pass laws saying we're a little uneasy about law enforcement doing DNA searches to find killers, rapists, and other criminals. How did we get here and what do these laws do? Yeah, I mean, law enforcement has had some pretty high profile successes in this space, taking DNA samples from crime scenes. And with the cooperation of some of these genealogy websites, searching their DNA repositories to identify potential suspects or relatives of suspects, and then building from there to find the culprit. And not surprisingly, people on the privacy side have had some concerns about these searches that are that have to date largely been unregulated other than by policy. And so both Maryland and Montana, as you said, have passed laws restricting use of these genealogy website repositories for law enforcement purposes. This is, it's important to note, it's in contrast to an outright ban, which was originally proposed in Maryland and has been adopted in other contexts like facial recognition. What both states have done is require the involvement of a judge through a search warrant or other means, which in my opinion is in some ways analogous to what was done with ECBA in 1986, where Congress got ahead of the courts and and courts determination that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the contents of your emails and imposed a search warrant requirement on at least some email contents by statute. And to me, it's a similar approach. They've, at least in Maryland, they have some additional bells and whistles here that are in some ways a little bit more like the Wiretap Act requiring exhaustion and limiting it to certain types of criminal activity. But, you know, I think the the ultimate question here is whether you in fact have a reasonable expectation of privacy or whether that's extinguished when you give the DNA sample to a third party. And there are some limits on the third party doctrine where you maintain that reasonable expectation of privacy. And I think this very well might be one where you do. Yeah, I left my semen behind in the uh, dead rape victim, uh, and I still want to claim privacy rights in that. Sure, I understand that perfectly. You know, it's the privacy rights of everybody else who's in the genealogy database who you're searching against. So they're you know, what, samples. The way these searches worked, as I understand it, you take the the DNA of the perp and you go to the the DNA provider and you say, I'd like to trace my family tree. Do I have any cousins or relatives or aunts or grandparents on already in the service? And they tell you. Uh, now, that's what they tell you. So it's not as though they are giving you everybody else's private data, except to say, yeah, you share a, a, a lot of DNA with these other people. I, I, you know, that doesn't strike me as a deep privacy intrusion. And, and the payoff is enormous. Uh, and so it, it strikes me as bizarre that they caught the Golden State Killer who had done all that raping and killing and got away with it. Uh, and people looked at that and didn't say, oh, that's great. They finally got that son of a bitch. They said instead, oh, that sounds like a privacy problem. I, it's crazy. That said, let me, let me ask you, actually ask a, a different question. I do think it's kind of hard to imagine that you couldn't get a search warrant in those cases. You've got- That's exactly where I was going to go. It <laughs> seems quite easy to me to obtain a search warrant. You've got evidence from the crime scene, right? Yeah. And you're the establishing probable cause and getting the ability to search these databases seems like a lot of ways, a, a bit of a box checking exercise. But I think what privacy advocates would say is it gives you judicial supervision over this process, which is, which has value, right? And, and they're going to, they're going to need them anyway. Law enforcement is going to need uh, orders because some of these genetic databases like 23andMe infected by Google's hostility to law enforcement has said, we won't do it without a court order. So if you don't have a mechanism for getting a court order, you're not going to get the data. So it, it seems to me it probably makes sense for law enforcement to shape these orders rather than fight them. Yeah. And, and as an evidentiary matter, demonstrating the relationship between the person who's ultimately charged and the leads that you obtain from the genealogy website will require a certain level of proof that's going to probably require you to actually obtain information about each of their relatives' DNA to establish that. So I think you're going to need a bunch of information. And as you're saying, you're going to need a warrant for most of that. Let me ask you about some other corner cases. Suppose you just have a 
bunch of bones in the forest. And you don't know what happened. You don't know whether it was a murder or somebody died of exposure. You're trying to figure out who it was. I, can you get a warrant for that? That's probably not. Well, then that's Unless nuts, there isn't are it? Some, some signs that it could have been foul play. But I don't know if it's nuts. I mean, you wouldn't be able to go search people's houses just based on finding bones in a forest in a public park or something like that, right? You'd have to have something to go on. And again, it, it usually doesn't require a whole lot to go on. You're only searched if, you're, if you've got a match. It's more like a dog sniff than a house search. If the dog sits down and says, yeah, he's got drugs, well, then you've been searched. Uh, and if he doesn't, you haven't been. And if you, if you have the drugs, you should have been searched. So I, I, I'm just not sure that... I, I, saying, oh, yeah, it's too bad. We won't be able to identify people we find uh, dead in the forest. But that's the price of some BS privacy interest that nobody can fully articulate. All right. All that said, this Maryland law is certifiably insane. It is an alternative to banning DNA searches in name only. It's full of all these regulatory requirements. You have to have somebody who's been trained to be a genealogical uh, forensics person. There's no such training course uh, in America. I, you can only use this to get information from databases that have already gotten consent from every single user. I, the, the, that the, one seems the craziest to me. That yeah. would give these websites the ability to basically opt out by how they write their terms of use. So it somebody sold Maryland a bill of goods, I, I think. Yeah. But, uh, but the Montana law, <laughs> if it were able to take account of the other occasions when you might want to quite legitimately to find out who somebody was, is probably the wave of the future. Okay. Uh, Jamil, I, I actually had words of praise for the Biden administration on this, or sort of praise. They have taken the Trump-China investment blacklist and moved it from DOD, which had completely screwed the pooch, to Treasury, which actually knows how to do this stuff. And I don't see any reason why they shouldn't have done that. Well, Look, I mean, I think Stuart, there's a there's a lot of a lot of reasons why Treasury has a lot of knowledge and, and capability in this space. At the same time, DoD has a certain level of domain expertise. Remember, what we're talking about here is the involvement of U.S. individuals or entities investing in Chinese military companies, right? That the question of what constitutes a Chinese military company is information that might perhaps reside most obviously in the Department of Defense, given that they are these subject matter domain experts on, or should be at least on the Chinese military and what organizations are associated with it. So you might think that the director of national intelligence uh, also has something to say about this. And so obviously, as with everything, having all the pieces of the government come in and weigh in is always important. Whether Treasury's had the lead or, or, and is better at this than DOD, I think it's a debatable question. I think what's really interesting, though, is that a lot of these stories about this change and what happened to the list suggests it's a, it's a significant expansion and improvement on the prior blacklist. I actually have a different view. And by the way, I think the Biden administration has a, has a superstar team of national security experts, including Jake Sullivan, right? You've got Ann Neubarger on the cyber side. You've got Jen Eastley and Chris Ingles nominated, Rob Joyce at NSA. This is a group of superstars when it comes to the cyber domain. Um, and defending the nation's cybersecurity. I'm hoping that it'll, it'll really gel once some of these people get confirmed. But I think the, the reality of this list is there are a number of entities that are not, no longer on this list, entities that are important, that should be on this list, and that ought to be barred from U.S. Uh, US entities and individuals investing in them if we believe the underlying theory that it's a good idea to bar these investments. There's a big debate about that. But assuming you buy that theory, which the Biden administration appears to do, even though this is pitched as an expansion or a broadening, I think there's a lot of things to be skeptical about in the details of the list they came up with. And I think that's a big worry uh, for me. And I think Congress, frankly, is going to have some views on this. I'm not sure they're going to be satisfied with the new list. Fair enough. The DOD lost this because they couldn't defend a single one of their designations in court. They had a, a judge who was clearly off the rails, but they didn't do a very good job of doing their homework to demonstrate a connection. And the Treasury has a long history. They can certainly get as they do with terrorism from the uh, NCTC, they get expert advice on their decisions. They're just the implementers and they've got good lawyers. I think this is probably the best institutional arrangement. I, I don't have the strong view about which of those companies ought to be on. And I would look forward to the hearings on people who were left off who should be on. All right, Nate. 
The Reuters headline was the U.S. is going to give ransomware hacks the same priority as terrorism. And my snark was, but with less good results. But it does look to me as though this is a pretty limited step by by the Justice Department. What is justice actually doing in this context? Yeah, I mean, as most agencies do, they set priorities that guide their people and their allocation of resources. So this heightened prioritization of ransomware investigations and prosecutions probably has some value, I guess. But as you say, the million dollar question remains whether they can effectively combat this problem. And if you take it and compare it to the other type of offense that they're matching the priority of terrorism, one of the major differences there, and that was a pretty hard problem to solve, right? But with 9-11 being such a galvanizing event, it put pressure on other countries, both allies and, and partners as distinct from allies, to assist U.S. investigative and enforcement efforts. And that's just, we don't have that here. And, and so it's going to be really hard to find something that's effective. I mean, I, I, if I were them, I would put more energy into the, the bucket of regulating cryptocurrencies on some level, putting pressure on Russia in a variety of ways. None of, of which is difficult. really, none of which are justice's core skills. So yeah, I, I do think the Justice Department in this administration has a lot of credibility with the president. And when they raise their hand and says, we'll take it from here, Mr. President, he tends to say, yeah, go for it. He was a former Judiciary Com- uh, Committee chairman. He likes those guys. But it's not clear to me that they can really do a lot on ransomware on the places where there's um, room for added pressure. Yeah. Relatively minor role, I think. Yeah. Wow. Killer robots, Jamil. Do we have them? And did the Turks? Do we have? I, I think the answer probably, if we have them or any good, is probably classified. I was not read in any killer, major killer robots programs, but you've read all about the public reporting about DOD plans and, and looks at some of this stuff. So the Turks clearly are doing something in this space. And not, by the way, they're not the only ones, right? We've seen a significant increase in drone strikes in the Iran, Israel, Iran, Yemen, Iran, and when I say Iran, by the way, I mean Iran proxies writ large, Iran, Saudi context, there's been a lot of drone stuff happening. And it's an increasing concern. And it should be an increasing concern, not just sort of single drones, but ideas of swarms. And you know, if if one gets through, you have successful capabilities. Yes, there's a lot to be said about this one idea of an autonomous drone taking a strike without anybody making decisions. And that's an interesting debate to have, right? I worry less about autonomous drones than taking strikes on their own and more about the larger issue of how we combat what is becoming um, increasingly a potential asymmetric capability. What do I mean by that? We have spent a lot of money on large, big iron, whether that's in our army or our navy uh, or the like. And yes, in certain areas, we've dealt with the, the drone problem, but it's clear that our adversaries are able to build these smaller, faster, lighter, and more capable and able to deploy them against us and our allies in a way that is potentially concerning. And so we've got to come up with a plan here and a strategy for really combating this. I think DOD is doing some interesting work in this space. Well, isn't it looks like it looks to me like DOD's plan is to buy these weapons from the Chinese. This doesn't sound like a long-term prospect. <laughs> so 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 I did see this reporting about about DOD allegedly approving a couple of uh, variants of the DJI drones. I would be very skeptical of that, right? I haven't seen DOD's latest uh, word on that today. I do know that the spokesman was asked about it last week. I do think there's a lot of reason to be skeptical that DOD's approved anything for their use, right? By the way, I think it would be a mistake. I think there's a lot of fire departments and police departments out there that are thinking about what they might do uh, and, and purchasing some of because DJ has offered them very cheaply. That would be a mistake. Let me be clear. I have not, I've wanted to buy one of these really cool drones for my son. I have not bought a DJI one, neither do I think you should. Um, I think it's a mistake. And frankly, if you're a first responder or a government agency, think not twice, not three times, but maybe 15 times. And if you've got to spend a little bit more, right, there's a great list. DIU's got a great list of blue UAS manufacturers, right, that, that, are, that are sort of American uh, authorized. Don't buy this story. I'm not sure that, I think there's a lot more to come about what, what DOD said, if anything, whether it's some one-off report or like, I'm skeptical. Okay, okay. I'd be very surprised. And by the way, if they did, I'd be questioning that, right? I, go on. The defense of our buying Chinese-made drones sounds like a terrible idea. It does. It does. But they may not have a, a choice if they want to uh, continue to use them in the way they've been using them. Just one thing on that point, I just want to remember, one thing to remember about these DJI drones also is last video we saw for them, 
was a video of a Uyghur of trains carrying Uyghurs to those, well, I would at least modern day gulags, if not something worse, right? And dropping people off. And the Chinese were using them to monitor this activity. It's worth noting that even if we forget all the national security reasons why we should buy these drones, there are important human rights reasons to be very skeptical of companies that assist the Chinese government with their oppression, repression of, of domestic populations. The UN, GGE, the global group of experts, in any event, it's the people who get together to try to set norms for cyber conflict. And to my astonishment, they produced a report that was approved by the UN General Assembly, which means that the Russians and the Chinese and pretty much everybody bought into the report, which makes me wonder whether we should have. But Charles, it looks actually as though it's kind of hard to argue with what the report does. It takes a bunch of things that have already been agreed and adds to them maybe nearly a dozen hard to argue with principles for things that countries ought to do if they're engaged in cyber conflict or cyber espionage. Did you have a, a different sense yeah, of it? So, and probably no surprise, it's a UN report. So, 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 uh, and it's a UN report out of a group that was composed on 20 of 25 members. And in those members, you indeed had Russia, China, the US, a couple of European countries, and they were speaking about responsible state behavior in cyberspace in the context of international security. So all of a program, but indeed you may question whether there is anything in that report that will eventually translate in anything actionable. Let's just point out and then we can decide whether we tend to agree or we think it's just a new form of cyber blue helmet or whatever it's the name. So, But we have in that report things like states shouldn't support actors, including other states, to conduct any wrongful cyber act. Okay, I think we to your point, we can probably agree. Engage in acts that disrespect human rights and fundamental rights. Okay. And language saying that states shouldn't sponsor attack on critical infrastructure. Okay. But we know that eventually that is happening. So, and the final point is, and I'm sure that everyone will be very threatened by that outcome. It says that if you are performing wrongful acts attributable to a state, it will mean, guess what, international responsibility. Okay, let's see what, what, what does that translate into, because I don't think anyone has been sued in an international court because of cyber war. So yeah, it's a UN report, let's put it that way. Yeah, I, that's where I came out. It, it 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 says essentially states should be good, and we really mean it. And and they stress that. And when we say states should be good, we mean they should be voluntarily good, not that they have to be good. Uh, and so it's sort of hard to take offense at, at norms that are purely voluntary and that are so anodyne. Uh, I, yeah, I'm going to save my ammunition for somebody else that, that matters more than that report. Uh, all right, let's get through uh, quick hits. We did this entire discussion, uh, Nate, I'm sure you celebrate without mentioning Donald Trump once. He but he's coming back maybe in January of 2023. That's what Facebook says because they're implementing what their panel of the good and the great recommended that they should not permanently ban him and that they ought to have a conditional return. So if he does not foment insurrection, they'll let him come back. He also shut down his blog page in partial celebration, apparently. I don't, there it is. I don't see that it has a lot of cyber law implications. Jamil, more Facebook and antitrust probes in the EU and the UK. I, I, it's gotten so you kind of, we should just announce when there isn't a new one in the EU. These struck me as very narrow and, and a little odd. Did you dig into what exactly the EU and the UK are investigating here? Well, Stuart, I think stepping back and, and then we can get into some of the details here. One of the big challenges, I think, is, as we talked about earlier with these, whether it's the antitrust probes or the like, and there are activities going on in the United States also, is this sort of disagreement that it sort of evinces between the U.S. and our European partners on how to deal with major technology companies, right? There is a debate in the U.S. about 
what's to be done about technology companies and how to address some of the challenges they pose. But a lot of that turns on, frankly, domestic politics, right? A lot of what you see discussion about antitrust, it's really, it's really influenced by a political conversation on both sides of the aisle, different perspectives, right? Concerns in on the Democratic side of the aisle about about the role and the way these companies treat their employees or the like, or the way they, they impact certain very narrow aspects of the market. On the Republican side, questions about, about, about content regulation and content moderation that all get folded into debates about antitrust, which frankly is not a good tool for dealing with this. And then in Europe, you have these concerns about the way their industry is responding to what has been, frankly, a, a win by U.S. technology companies and a successful effort by U.S. technology companies to change the way people communicate and deal with one another and the failure of European companies to, frankly, be successful competitors in that space. And what I worry about is that rather than us coming together and say, okay, we share certain values around innovation, around around potential regulations, if there are already regulations, we have certain values that we can come to consensus on and find a path forward on together. Rather, we're sort of it's the Europeans coming out and saying, we're going to preference our companies over American companies, right? It's what G- happened with GDPR. It's now happening in the antitrust space, right? We're going to take action. I mean, you saw literally the EU sort of naming, here are the four companies we want to target. I mean, that's how obviously it's become, um, or EU leadership, I should say, with this Digital Markets Act and the like. And this is not the way that America and Europe should get together particular time when we have a much bigger challenge on the horizon that's china so now yeah why, yeah I, i'm gonna start i'm gonna start singing kumbaya under your monologue but but here's the thing about it and i'm not a kumbaya kind of person Stuart. but i do think that given the challenges that we had in the prior administration with working with our european allies i'm hopeful that joe biden and his team can get the europeans to see that we together right us and europe have more in common than we do with what the Chinese want to do and where the Chinese and Russians want to take our cybersecurity marketplace. And that rather than nickel and diming each other, whether it's on antitrust or data privacy or surveillance or or market regulation, right, and try to figure out whose company's going to win, we got to realize that none of this matters if the Chinese win the game. It's not going to matter on human rights. It's not going to matter on, on, on content moderation. It's not going to matter on, on, on companies because what, what we've seen happen with Huawei and ZTE is going to happen to all of us in the te- larger technology space if we don't get smart and fast. So now we can get into the details if you want, but I, to me, that's the bigger issue. And the details are sort of, you're right. It's been just a sea of antitrust, a sea of fights over privacy, a sea of fights over nonsense that pales in comparison to the larger challenge we both collectively face. All right. Well, we're, we're, these are the quick hits, so I'm just going to move us along. Uh, Charles, digital identities finally come into Europe and in a what I would describe as a typical European Commission move. They announced that, that they're, this is all going to happen and it's got to happen uh, and all the hard work is going to be done by the member states. Yeah, and, and it's really very good PR because they say every European will have its digital identity. And then indeed, when you browse down a little bit, it's nothing new because it's just a a revamp of existing rules uh, under uh, what is called EIDAS regulation, which is indeed not even a digital identity, but a kind of secure path between some form of evidence of your identity in the physical world that ties into uh, a digital certificate that you can use and reuse for other purposes. So it's not an EU identity and it's probably not even an EU digital identity, but it's nevertheless good to have. And frankly, 14 member states out of the 27 already have it in place. So it's that's a quick hit for the EU probably because saying everyone will have it whilst you already have a majority of member states having it, it's, it's good PR. Okay, so it's been a long time since we talked about sex on the Cyberlaw podcast, and I always like to when I can. But the woman who gave us, the member of Congress who gave us the, the word thruple is back in the news for about a minute and a half. She has filed a lawsuit sh- saying she's really the victim of her pulling a uh, staffer into her thruple uh, and because nude pictures of her were photo- were posted by, I think, the Daily Mail, and she sued them for sextortion, not sextortion, for revenge porn under California's law. And the judge said, yeah, actually, First Amendment, you lose, and you owe a hundred and some thousand dollars to the Daily Mail for their having to defend themselves. Her lawsuit against her husband goes on, but I think we can uh, return her to the uh, the dustbin of history, including her photos. Speaking of the dustbin of history, I think Twitter's 
pushing it. Nigeria has suspended Twitter's operations because Twitter said the president of uh, Nigeria said that um, what he considers and what may well be a kind of secessionist movement in the Southeast that re recalls some of the worst times of the Nigerian civil war back in the 70s, that the people who are doing that are going to, are, are playing with fire essentially, and are going to eventually be met with the same solutions that the government used in the civil war. And Twitter said, oh, that's a threat of violence. Not, having not noticed that uh, one exp one definition of government is the people who have legitimate monopolies on the use of violence, and they banned the president's speeches, and he said, Joe, okay, you're banned too. And they are now, we are now seeing whether Nigeria can actually prevent Twitter from operating inside its boundaries. I would not be surprised because this is the equivalent of, to my mind, of Twitter saying that when the House of Representatives said it was an insurrection on January 6th and needs to be penalized with the full force of government, that was a threat of violence and that they're going to suspend Nancy Pelosi. A, that kind of reaction, that's the, the reaction that I suspect we're going to get out of a lot of Nigerians who, who think that this really is a serious threat that needs to be addressed. And Twitter just is probably tone deaf to the, the mess it's making of itself. All right. And finally, this just this morning, the Supreme Court took a FISA case, Nate. Uh, it, it's a weird case from the Ninth Circuit, what comes, you know, sort of redundantly, a, where the Ninth Circuit made up an entire legal doctrine built on top of a FISA provision that says if the government wants to use a FISA to prosecute you, then the judge gets to look at the FISA and the justification for it to see whether it would violates the Constitution, and they can do it in uh, camera. And so somebody else brought a lawsuit against the FBI saying, we think we were imprisoned because of our uh, religion, and we'd like to see all the data that was used. And we think this provision allows us to invoke the in-camera authority of the judge to review the, all of the FISA decisions. And the Solicitor General in this administration has said, excuse me, but there's a state secrets doctrine that allows us to say, we're not going to tell you that. And the FISA provision is a narrow exception that allowed us to bring a prosecution and still protect the secrets. But if it's not us bringing the prosecution, we don't see why we can't use the state secrets doctrine. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit is just out to lunch here. The fact that there isn't a conflict and that the court took the case suggests that uh, out to lunch was their first conclusion too. So we'll get a chance to look at this in more detail, but it should be interesting. All right. That is the the entire show. We're not going to do an interview today. Uh, so thanks, Jamil. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Charles. This was a great program. Uh, great long discussion. Don't forget to send questions if you're listening to or feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Please leave us a rating. We always like the ratings. Even more, we like the reviews, especially if they're entertaining. Entertainingly abusive will do, but uh, entertaining for sure. Thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our intro and outro music. This has been episode 365 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Steptoe.